Our family lived in a Cape Cod in Prairie Village for 24 years, and we loved that house. We raised our kids there. A lot of significant things happened in that house. And one of the, uh, the uh, important parts of our house was actually the staircase. We had one staircase which went upstairs to the kids' bedrooms. Aaron and Allie had one bedroom, and Zach had his own. And there are very many wonderful memories as we think about those stairs. Those stairs at the top of the stairs, Doug and I would take turns sitting in the middle between the two bedrooms, and we would read to the kids at night so everybody could hear the story at the same time. And we, we would read, uh, we went through all the, uh, the Narnia series, we went through all the Little House series, uh, we cried as we read as the red fern grows, it was, uh, there were sweet memories there. However, those stairs were also a thorn in my side. They were steep and they were narrow with a very sharp turn, just like three, three steps from the top. Had a stair rail which was always sticky. Uh, we also had a border collie who, when the kids went up the stairs or down the stairs, the dog would always gallop up or gallop down. And so, and nobody ever just walked up the stairs or they walked down the stairs. They were climbing, you know, jumping up the stairs two at a time, running down. So it was always just like a, a herd, you know, that we, this herd of elephants. I remember that term. Listen to the kids go up and down. It was just kind of rambunctious and it was dangerous. And the reason it was dangerous is because our wonderful kids who we love, who we love, um, <laughs> they, darling though they were, they would leave regularly backpacks and books and shoes and coats and, and sweatshirts at the bottom of the stairs. One of our rules was when you go upstairs, you take your stuff up the stairs. They're strong, they could totally do it, and they never did it. And so there were always things at the bottom of the stairs. And you're, you're, you know, you're going up and you have to climb over and you have to sidle on the side of them. Those things were always there. Well, one night, I went to go upstairs and I tripped over Allie's backpack. And that was the straw that broke Mother's back that night. So I grabbed that. Those backpacks are heavy. You know how heavy they are? Well, I grabbed it with superhuman strength. And I grabbed it and I ran upstairs. I burst into Allie's room, and I went to throw it on her bed, and it missed her bed, hit the wall, went through the wall, partway into the attic space. <laughs> Allie's cowering on Aaron's bed. Zach walks in, and we're just standing there speechless. Now, fortunately, Doug was out of town that night. <laughs> And so we quickly found an extra bulletin board, hung it over the hole in the wall, and he never knew it until years later when we went to paint the house to get it ready to, to sell. So um, you can see that strong emotion is familiar to me, and there are probably other stories that will not be told. Um, and that spurt of anger that I felt really led to what was called now the backpack incident. Um, but that anger really was not even the core emotion. It came about because of concern and fear for safety. Uh, psychologists refer to anger as a secondary emotion. Anger covers over us when we have an emotion that makes us feel more vulnerable, like sadness or fear or shame. Uh, when something 
is, um, is in danger that is very important to us. We see this emotion, we see this anger in Paul as there was a real threat to something that was core to this new movement in Christianity and he needed to nip it in the bud. Will you pray with me, please? Ah, Lord, you are so good. You are so good to give us the story of yourself, of your children, Lord, and how you incorporate our stories into yours is just remarkable. So, Lord, help us to have ears to what you are saying to us individually and what you are saying to us as a church. Um, we want you to speak. We are attuned to your mouth. We look to you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to spend some time understanding the context of this book. And I always stay close to my notes, but I'm, I'm going to stay even more close today because it's so important and it's, uh, it's a little bit confusing and I do want it to get it right because we're going to be using this all through these next weeks in Galatians. So before we look at these four verses, I want to mention that how the beginning of this letter is different than the rest of Paul's letters to the churches, the other epistles that he writes. In the other letters, he does not, or in this letter, he does not follow his salutation with a uh, uh, being thankful for the church and praying for the church. He does that in his other epistles. In this one, he gets right to it. He expresses astonishment and rebuke. And interestingly, the term, I am astonished, was a common term used in those times in these kinds of letters of a rebuke. They rebuke the, leader, the reader for not meeting the expectations of the writer. And the churches in Galatia had definitely been a surprise and a disappointment to Paul. Although we'll stay in this text, we do need to mention the connection that this text has with the book of Acts, and especially Acts chapter 15. There's been some controversy in the dating of the Galatians letter and how they work together. Uh, most scholars now think that Paul's letter to the Galatians was actually a prequel to Acts 15, the controversy that was resolved by a council there. Galatians sets it up and helps us to know how heated the arguments were in Acts 15. You remember Paul's missionary journeys. Well, his very first one resulted in a conversion of a large number of Gentiles. And as a result, we see two different cultures emerge within the early church, one of Gentile origin, one of Jewish origin. And when he was returning to Jerusalem, he caught wind of some Jewish Christian teachers who infiltrated these Galatian churches with a polluted message that was endangering the entire gospel. This term, Judaizers, will be used not about Jews in general, but to a specific movement in earliest Christianity that believed conversion to Christ also involved a further conversion to their Pharisaic form of Judaism. And then before Paul left on his second missionary journey and just before the Council of Acts, Paul sent this urgent and emotional missive to Galatia with a prayer and hope that it would straighten the churches out there. Paul had found that the gospel was powerful and that scores of Jews and Gentiles were converting to Jesus as the Messiah. In addition, these Jews who were not in Jerusalem were less socially conventional than the Hebrew Christians, 
and typical Jews of Jerusalem. This different social context allowed the new converts to accept and work out a gospel lifestyle that was less law-centered. And so they did, they did so in some ways that were quite unacceptable to the Jews in Jerusalem. And here's where the tension began. The law-abiding or conservative Jews of Jerusalem heard about the lawless Jewish and Gentile Christian converts and began to put pressure on the Jerusalem Christians. They came to the conclusion that the new converts to Christianity were not Jews at all, and if they were not willing to live according to the basic Jewish distinctive, their conclusion, pressure the conservative party to engage in an active proselytization of the new converts to get them to confirm, conform to the law. And so the conservative party sent out some Judaizers to follow up the evangelization of Paul. It is possible that the Galatian converts were feeling a little insecure at that time about Paul's moral guidelines. Live in the spirit, live in freedom. Their conversion was a conversion in most instances from pagan lawlessness to what was perceived to be Christian lawlessness. It was likely that they began to feel the need for laws and regulations, especially if some of their members were, were starting to drift a little in the direction of indulging the flesh. Additionally, the Galatian converts may have been feeling a loss of social identity since their faith in Christ excluded them from both the pagan temples and the Jewish synagogues, which unlike today, in those days, those were the places of connection and community. So they sought identification with the Jewish people, God's people, by observing the law. Apparently, they were also convinced that if they came under the discipline of the Mosaic law, the law could empower them to overcome evil. Mesmerized by the message of the impressive teachers of the law, they became disenchanted with Paul. Their focus shifted from union in Christ by faith and dependence on the Spirit to identification with the Jewish nation and observance of the law. They were attempting to perfect or consummate Christianity by adding the laws of Moses. They were saying there are essentially two conversions. Follow Jesus to become a Christian and then become Jewish. The first is not sufficient. There is more that, be, can be, that needs to be done to be saved. That would be like telling uh, somebody who comes to faith at a Billy Graham crusade, that's good, but you need to do one more thing. You need to become Presbyterian. Oh, you need to become Lutheran. You need to become Methodist. You need to join a group beyond your following Jesus to be truly complete and acceptable to God. When this sort of thing takes place, the message itself is changed. It is no longer surrendered to Christ. It is join a group. And since some of the convert converts were converting to Judaism now and others weren't, there would have been a lot of heated rhetoric in such a context. Paul feared the creation of two denominations, Jewish Christianity and Gentile Christianity. He feared a decision to live in B.C. days when the A.D. days had arrived. He feared a decision to recede back in time into the days of Moses and to reject the epoch-altering revelation in Christ. Sometimes there are legitimate differences, but this was one that was total and devastating. 
when the gospel of grace of Christ is, supplant, is supplemented with the system of Moses, the result is not perfected, fully mature gospel. Rather, it is a gross perversion. It is a heresy. Whatever practices detract from the all-sufficiency of Christ and the enabling ministries of the Spirit must be opposed. Whatever practices build walls between people who believe in Jesus Christ must be torn down. Whoever seeks to demand any such things must be countered. In effect, whatever message that is not Christ in the Spirit alone is a perversion and must be radically denounced. The Judaizers are wrong because they sacrificed Christ and the Spirit on the altar of Judaizing legalism. Now, remember, Paul is not against good things. He thinks the law is good. He probably thinks eating kosher is good. We know from the New Testament that he lived according to the Jewish calendar and occasionally took on himself Jewish vows. If these things could be performed without causing offense or if these things needed to be done in order to reach the Jews, Paul was for them. But if these things were done as a necessary supplement to faith in Christ, then Paul was diametrically opposed to their practice. He was against the legalism of the Judaizers because it usurped the work of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit and forced all converts to become Jews. This is legalism of a certain type, and it is actually ethnocentrism, which is defined as the belief that one's own culture is superior to all others and is the standard by which all other cultures should be measured. They were convinced that the blessing was of God was given to the people of God and that only the Jewish people were the people of God. So they insisted that all Gentile Christians had to become Jewish before they could enjoy the full blessings of God. Ethnocentric legalism is not the same as the differences that we might find within Christian denominations. There are denominations in which there's a difference in whether they do liturgy or they don't do liturgy, and whether they uh, use a certain uh, translation of the Bible, whether they have a particular type of worship, whether they do particular types of prayers. It's different than even polarizing issues within the church, such as life issues, such as gun politics, such as immigration. To bridge this letter's context to contemporary times, we must seek for ideas, practices, and people who supplant the sufficiency, sufficiency of Christ and the power the Spirit plays in our lives. What could some examples be of these for us? Where do we tend to veer off? when we say or think, you are not a real Christian unless you use certain Christian terms, talk about your faith in particular ways, have certain experiences, pray or worship in a particular way. You are not a real Christian if you believe in a certain theory of end times, if you use tobacco, if you're in a particular Christian denomination, could these be viewed as ethnocentric? Or perhaps having an us and them attitude, those people. Those people always think this. These people always do that. Ascribing to people who are outside or inside a certain group within Christianity that some are real Christians and others are not, 
or some are closer to God or have God's ear in a special way while others do not. I got schooled on this when I was in seminary because in my seminary there were several different denominations represented. And my view of real Christians opened up as I studied and prayed with and experienced the presence of the Spirit in others who previously I would have not thought that they were saved. It was humbling as well as encouraging to see God's grace shed so generously. So back to our four verses this morning. His language is strong. He uses the word astonished. Different gospel. Pervert the gospel. He uses the word curse. Let them be under God's curse. In other translation, he just says, let them be cursed. That word, anathema, eternally condemned or cursed, he uses it two times to make the point. This word is used in the Hebrew Bible for something that is consecrated to God for his destruction. He uses it in Deuteronomy 7 and Joshua 6. Scholars note that this language is far too strong to be referring to church discipline as it's used elsewhere in the New Testament. He is invoking God's final damnation and wrath on people who distort the gospel of grace in Christ and substitute, in effect, Moses' law as the preeminent form of revelation. He is invoking a curse because the Judaizers are changing the gospel. They are not just adding to it, they are changing it in substance. They are perverting it. They're making it a different gospel. They are preaching another gospel than what they accepted. The gospel, it's the good news of what God has done to reach out to us and save us. Those sins and in that present evil age that are earlier in the chapter, that good news is that when we turn to follow Jesus as Lord, we have been freed from them. Later on in Galatians 5, Paul writes, it is for freedom that Christ sets us free. And from Jesus' mouth in John chapter 8, when the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. No wonder Paul is so upset that the Galatians may reject that freedom. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul, give word, Paul gives words to the gospel. For I delivered to you as, as, as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And our contemporary Kim, Tim Keller, author and pastor of a vibrant church in New York City, describes the gospel succinctly. God has entered the world in Jesus Christ to achieve a salvation that we could not achieve for ourselves, which now converts and transforms individual individuals, forming them into a new humanity. <clears throat> and as many theologians and churches, including Hillcrest, are describing the gospel today, we use the term the four-chapter or the four-part gospel. Creation, God is good and beautiful. Fall, God tells us the truth about our brokenness. Rescue, God restores relationships between us and others. And call, God calls us to be on a great adventure. This is such good news. It's so good that we can take it for granted, especially if we have followed Jesus for a while. But the gospel is so good, the freedom is so profound, that really when we get, when we get a hold of it, it actually seems too good to be true. 
Frederick Buechner, a wonderful author, in his book, The Final Beast, he's describing the gospel, and he takes a moment, he stops, and he says, can you believe it? Can you believe it? Can you believe it? It's true. It's completely covered. It's completely paid for. There is not one iota that we can add to improve our status with God. <coughs> it is all grace because Jesus paid for it fully. It is completely a gift. And as you know, a gift is free. We are made by and for God, and we are made to hear the gospel. Augustine said, our hearts are restless until they rest in you. There's glimpses of it all around. In his book, uh, Vanishing Grace, <clears throat> Philip Yancey refers to a, a survey in which Americans were asked what words they would most like to hear. The first choice is predictable. I love you. The second choice was, I forgive you. And the third choice was a surprise. Supper's ready. <laughs> it dawned on him that these three statements provide a neat summary of the gospel story. We are loved by God, forgiven by God, and invited to the banquet table. In the midst of a planet marked by brokenness, violence, natural disasters, rupture relationships, the gospel is truly good news. Like an iPod listener dancing in a subway station full of glum commuters, a Christian hears a different sound of joy and laughter on the other side of pain and death. I decided to follow Jesus when I was a senior in college at Iowa State after two friends, high school friends, shared of me, of their conversion and, and uh, their following him. And for me, it was a dramatic night and day conversion. I felt completely different, free. I felt unencumbered by, from proclivities, lawlessness, habits, which were not life-giving. I was free, and I was in the family of God with a new life and purpose. Then, a particular church was recommended to me that I needed to go to that church. Well, there are a lot of young people there, and so I thought, that's the church for me. But what I found there was not only had I made the life-altering decision to follow Jesus, and it was very much a turnaround for me, I now needed to make another decision to fit into a further life-altering culture of this particular church. And for me, it was not life-giving. It was crushing. The way they spoke, the way they talked to each other, the way they talked to me, the songs they sang, the language they used. But I did not know any better, so I just tried to fit in, resulting in a feeling of being crushed, weighed down, and diminished as a young adult, as a woman, as a woman with my particular personality and strengths, which would not, did not correspond to what Christian women were supposed to look and be like in that particular church. It was as if I had just had a heavy backpack cut away when I came to faith, and I was free. I walked into that church, and they said, here, here's another one. Just as heavy, with a whole new set of burdens. Thankfully, God had given me an early, vibrant faith 
And when I started reading the Bible, it was so delightful. It was so alive. It was so radical. I loved it. No, the hardest part wasn't ending my typical sow your wild oats college lifestyle and deciding to follow Jesus. That was freedom. It was the pressure to adjust to a whole new culture that was truly ethnocentric, that this is the way to live as a Christian. We are the group who best follows Jesus, resulting in more blessings than the others, to be and act like someone that God did not make me to be. And it took me years to recover which is one of the reasons I love Alpha so much. I know what it's like to walk into a situation earnestly seeking to do the right thing and how it feels so wrong. I know what it's like to not be accepted for who I am right now and to feel a pressure to fit our club. At Alpha, we consciously try to make it as easy as possible to walk into those doors. It's so easy to forget how much courage it takes for someone who's a churchgoer to walk into the doors of our church. We do not allow Christian jargon, and we don't even allow talk about church during dinner. We get to know each other as fellow human beings. The culture is non-hierarchical. Everyone serves one another. We do not want to make someone conform to our church culture. We only want to introduce them to Jesus and we want everyone to feel welcome. Early on, we noted a way of that this was happening and that we would, outside Fellowship Hall doors, we would see cigarette butts littered around the outside, and we saw that many of our guests were going outside and taking cigarette breaks. So we went along with them and go outside and continue the conversation because we just wanted to be together. No, we don't want to require something that God doesn't. We don't want to be pressured by or be the ones who are equivalent of modern-day Judaizers. The simplicity, the freedom of the gospel, we don't need to go from lawlessness to legalism. We are saved by grace, grace alone, resulting in freedom. May God help us to live freely, enjoying the freedom Christ gives us, and let others do so as well. Always pointing to Jesus, the one who truly sets us free. Will you pray with me, please? We praise you, Lord Jesus, for who you are, for the light burden you give us, for the easy yoke you invite us to, to live free, to become all that you have made us to be for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.